This morning, we are beginning a new verse-by-verse series in the New Testament book of James. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of James near the end of the New Testament there. The book of James. This is going to be a verse-by-verse study as we had in the book of Romans. Let me begin by saying I think that most all of us here this morning will be able to relate to the man James. He was Jesus' half-brother, but he didn't believe on Jesus Christ for 33 years. After James' conversion, he became a whole lot more concerned with the practice of being a follower of Christ than with the theory. He was a very practical half-brother to Christ. James expected being to blossom into doing that who we have become in Christ would translate into what we do and don't do in daily life. James was no learned theologian. He was basically a lay instructor in the everyday matter of Christian lifestyle. The Holy Spirit, of course, used this humble half-brother of our Savior, James, to write perhaps one of the most practical, useful, hard-hitting, with respect to life change books in all of the Bible. If you begin looking at verse 1 of chapter 1 with me, we read, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. The first thing that I like about James is that he is no name dropper. Although he was the Lord Jesus Christ's half-brother, he doesn't even mention that in connection with introducing himself. Instead, he chooses to mention the servant-master relationship between himself and his Savior. I like that. And although the Lord Jesus Christ was James' half-brother, James never called Jesus just plain Jesus. Here in verse 1, and then again in chapter 2, verse 1, James instead calls the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, his full name. The Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. I like James' outlook as it pertained to himself. It was one of humility. I like his outlook as it pertained to the Savior was one of reverence. Is that you? Are you humble in your standing in God's family? And are you reverent to the one who made that standing possible? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting if you do a little study that the ascension of the risen Lord Jesus Christ marked a real change in what the New Testament writers called him. Before the ascension, the New Testament called Jesus simply Jesus 
608 times. And still, before the ascension, the New Testament writers call him the Lord Jesus Christ zero times. Before ascension, he's simply Jesus 608 times in the New Testament. Before ascension, he is not called the Lord Jesus Christ at all. But after ascension, after he ascended from earth to his father's right hand, resurrected, glorified, after the ascension, the New Testament writers call him the Lord Jesus Christ 81 times. And after the ascension, the New Testament calls him simply Jesus 62 times. Friends, we show our proper reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ when we use his full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means he's master. Jesus means he's savior. Christ means he's the anointed one. He's the promised Messiah. Maybe we together could work on consistently calling him by his full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. James is remarkably humble. James is clearly a servant of this Lord Jesus Christ. And going on to verse 2, I think it's instructive that the Son of God's half-brother chose to call him the Lord Jesus Christ and not just Jesus because James was no name-dropper. James was a humble servant who reverenced his divine master. Do we? The book of James is called a general epistle, and it's called that because it is addressed to believers in general in the first century. It was not addressed specifically to a certain local church in a city like Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi or Thessalonica. It was a general inspired letter written to Christians wherever they were in the world scattered. It's a general epistle. James was writing to the Jewish Christians who were scattered all over the known world of that day. And what does James choose to write first to these scattered believers? He says, greetings, in verse 1. You could also translate it, be glad, or rejoice. And so when the Spirit of God moves Jesus' half-brother James to write a general epistle to born-again people and persons all over the world. And he chooses and moves him to write greetings or be glad or rejoice. Those first readers must have been having an easy time of it, right? They must have been celebrating some anniversary. They must have been in a bed of ease and affluence and comfort, right? They must have been vacationing or prospering. They must have been absent of any concerns or anxieties or pressures, right? Uh, not right. Not even hardly right. 
According to verse 2, these original readers were facing trials of many kinds. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And so in the face of trials, they were told in verse 1 to be glad. They were told in the midst of frustrations and pressures and difficulties, they were to rejoice. How could they possibly do that? How could we possibly do that? How could we be glad? How could we rejoice? How could we be calm and settled in the sovereignty and the goodness of God facing very hard frustrations and inconveniences and costly downturns? How? Verse 2 again, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Do you know how they could do it back then and how you can do it this morning? You can do it by considered choice. You can make it your considered choice to be glad and to rejoice right smack in the middle of your trials. It's a choice. It's a choice for us to be glad. It's a choice for us to rejoice in our trials. It's a choice. We don't have to be shaped and squeezed and molded by our circumstances. When I say to someone, how are you? And they say, pretty good, under the circumstances. I say, what are you doing under them? So in the face of trials, we can be glad. We can rejoice if we make it our considered choice. And that's what verse 2 is stating. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy, total joy, undiluted joy, no sorrow mixed with joy, complete joy, by making it a considered choice of your evaluation of your circumstance and your trial. Choose to consider it joy. Fanny Crosby did that. She was blinded as a young child by the medical mistake of a wrong prescription by her doctor. That's what happened to Fanny Crosby. She was blinded by a medical error. How did she respond to that? Well, she came to faith in Christ and let Jesus Christ change her attitudes and her assessments of her trials, and she went on to write 8,000 hymns. 8,000 hymns. And at the ripe old age of 85, She had absolutely no bitterness at the doctor, no bitterness at her parents, no bitterness with God, none. Do you know how I know? Because at age 85, Fanny Crosby wrote, all the way my Savior leads me, 
What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know that whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of of joy I see. All the way my Savior leads me, oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Her considered choice blinded by a doctor's error when she was a little girl at 85 years of age, having written 8,000 hymns all the way my Savior's led me. She wasn't bitter. She found a way to be glad in her trial. She found a way to rejoice in God in her trial, and so can you. So what about your trials? What about my trials? Are we considering these trials pure joy? Are we being glad in our trials? Remember, it's a choice we make, and you and I can make it, and we should. It's a choice we make. The Bible wouldn't tell you to make that choice if you couldn't be expected to make that choice. Whatever God's will is, it's always possible. And he has said in his word in these first few verses of the book of James, rejoice in your trials. Count them all joy. So it must be possible. God does not command what he does not enable us to do. And so the message this morning is don't trade your trials. Don't trade your trials. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we're going to see five reasons quickly, five reasons why we aren't to trade our trials. Number one, reason number one, you are not to trade your trials is this. Trials come often. Trials come often to all of us. Verse 2 is a significant little phrase. See it there in verse 2. Whenever you face trials. And that's often. We all face trials often. Trials are not like chicken pox or the mumps. Once you've had one, you don't get any more. Just because we've had a trial doesn't mean we'll have no other trials. Quite the contrary. Trials come to us often. Someone has said, the man whose problems are all behind him probably drives a school bus. <laughs> Think about it. The man whose troubles are all behind him drives a school bus. Nobody's troubles, trials are all behind them. Trials come often, so don't trade your trials. Number two reason not to trade your trials is trials come with many different faces. Trials come with many different faces. I see another key phrase still in verse 2, and the key phrase there is trials of many kinds. Trials come with many different faces. You know why they do? Because trials, in the big scheme of things, are divine medicines. 
divine prescriptions that God writes out for each of us individually, tailor-made to our needs to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. They have, trials have many faces. They're like medicine. No two patients have the same prescription medications. Each patient is unique. What is right medicine for me in a certain dosage might cause terrible reactions and drug interactions with you. Trials come with many different faces. It was Henry Ward Beecher who said, quote, no physician ever weighed out medicine for his patients with half so much care and exactness as God weighs out to us every trial. God is the supreme, to use a metaphor, pharmacist, does not prescribe to you one gram too much of any medicine that he permits you to have to take in life called a trial. And so we aren't to trade our trials because our trials come with different faces. There's a third reason we aren't to trade our trials, and it is this. Trials are faith testers. Trials are faith testers. Trials are not merely hassles, not merely hurts, not merely setbacks, not merely inconveniences, not merely frustrations. Trials at their heart are faith testers. God tests your faith by the trials he allows you to have to face. God in his love tests our faith with the view that we will pass the test. You know, God's word never promises us a smooth flight just a safe landing. God's word never promises us all a safe flight, but he does promise us all who know Christ a safe landing. And we aren't to trade our trials because all of our trials test our faith. And God wants our faith to be robust and healthy and growing strong in him. He wants our faith to come out when we're squeezed by the trials of life. He wants faith to spill out of us when we are given blows and knocks in life. Do you know that this past week, Dr. David Allen, who is a dear friend of this assembly, he was robbed at gunpoint in his home. Two young thugs came in with guns and held him up. And he quietly did not resist them, and they went through his place, and they stole a bunch of jewelry. And as they were going out the door, do you know what our brother said to these thugs? Wait, can I pray for you? Yeah. So Dr. David Allen prayed for those two young men who have since been arrested. I believe they're in their early 20s. Can you imagine? How is it that when he's being threatened, his very life is being threatened by intruders who want to steal his property, how is it that he could have the presence of mind and the inclination to say, wait, can I pray for you? <clears throat> ah, because Dr. Allen had been through other trials previous to that morning. And he had learned to trust his God in those trials. 
so he could trust his God in that trial. Trials are faith testers. Verse 2 through first part of 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, trials are faith testers. The Lord wants our faith to be in him, and the Lord wants our faith to be unwavering, and the Lord wants our faith to be encouraging to us and others. And he wants us, when we're squeezed by trials, that what comes out of us is faith in him. So we aren't to trade our trials. There's a fourth reason we aren't to trade our trials, and it's this. Trials culminate in perseverance. Trials end up in perseverance. I see that in verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. You really can't have the endurance God wants you to have except you go through trials. When I was in high school, I suffered from allergic asthma. My allergic asthma came into play when I was near a cat or a dog, a straight-haired dog. The dander of those two pets would choke me up broncholy, and I would have allergic asthma. I also had asthma reaction in the fall in Canada when the leaves would come down, it would rain more, and mold will start to grow on those leaves that are on the ground, and I would get very asthmatic. It felt like I had an elephant on my chest. It was very difficult to breathe. In high school, I remember one fall that we were doing long distance cross-country running in phys ed class. And I went to my teacher and I said, sir, I have allergic asthma and I don't think I can run long distances. And he said, get a note from your doctor. So I did. And I came back and gave the note to my phys ed teacher. He said, you know what? I respect the fact you have allergic asthma, but how about you just try to see how much you can do? And when you start to feel your uh, breathing is labored, stop. But I think it would be good for you if you tried. Well, I could run a little bit, and then I would stop for the day. And next day in class, I would run a little bit further, and then I would stop with asthma. Am I ever glad that my teacher encouraged me to persevere because I gained endurance, but not just for that phys ed class. I learned I could do things that I didn't think I could do in many levels, academics, socially, community service. I learned through the trial of asthma that I could do things. I didn't, want to, didn't need to fold up and quit. And one of the reasons we aren't to trade our trials is that trials end up in perseverance. Do you know how a giraffe is born? I'll tell you. The baby giraffe comes out of its mama front hooves and head first. And eventually the baby comes out all the way, and then it falls from the mother 10 feet to the ground. Yeah, it doesn't sound very easy, does it? And eventually, after the baby's come outside of the mama and falls 10 feet to the ground on its back, after some seconds, the baby giraffe rolls up, 
tucks its legs under its body, and after about two minutes, the mother giraffe positions herself so as to kick her baby out of the ball. That sounds mean. No. The baby, after kicked by mama, goes head over heels several times, and when the baby doesn't get up, the mother repeats that kicking process over and over again, and when the baby giraffe finally stands for itself to its very first time on its feet, then the mama kicks it off its feet one more time. This is not abuse. This is getting that baby giraffe viable to stand on its own two legs early as possible so a cheetah won't have it for breakfast. Don't trade your trials. The Lord is building, building, building perseverance into you through your trials. And it may seem like God is repeatedly kicking you off of your feet, but there's much more to it than what he's doing than that. Because we have a predator, Satan, who we're told in the book of Peter, prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Don't trade your trials, church, because God sends you those trials that you will gain, among other things, perseverance. And we all need that. The fifth reason we aren't to trade our trials is because trials move us on to maturity and completion. Verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result. What's the perfect result of endurance? What's the perfect result? Say it another way of perseverance. There's one thing, a perfect result, singular, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God sends trials to build our endurance, to build our perseverance, so that we will be perfect and complete. God's will for you is that you be perfect, mature, and complete. Not mature and incomplete, not incomplete and immature, but God wants you to be complete and perfect. Let me illustrate. A 10-year-old boy, all things being equal, is complete because all of his parts are there. But he's not yet mature. He's 10 years old. On the other hand, a one-legged 30-year-old man is mature, but he's not complete because he's missing a leg. Trials lead to perseverance or endurance, and perseverance or endurance leads to maturity and completion. All of our parts mature and all of our parts intact. That's what God is doing. The Olympics start this coming Friday. Picture a 30-year-old Bahamian sprinter, prime of life, trained up as best he can be. He's mature and he's complete. He's not lacking anything. We aren't to trade our trials, church, because God sends us trials to move us to spiritual maturity and spiritual completeness. How do you see your trials? What is your considered opinion about your trials? Trials can be considered 
properly to be pure joy. Uh, James tells us that that's so. Consider, verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James tells us that we can consider and we should consider all our trials joy. And you know, in closing, James knew about trials. He knew about trials in his own beautiful spiritual growth progression. He went through his own trials. If you go with me to John chapter 7, verse 5. In John chapter 7, in verse 5, we read, For not even his brothers were believing in him. At this point in John's story, he didn't believe that his half-brother Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe it. And that unbelief was shared by the other half-brothers of Jesus at that point. And so here we have the half-brother of Jesus who's used of the Holy Spirit later to write a book of the New Testament. There's a record in the earlier part of the New Testament. He didn't even believe in Christ at one point. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we're told something happened to James. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, this is what we're told. Starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised up on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. (laughs) The half-brother who in John 7 didn't believe in Jesus. Maybe that's you this morning. You're here in a church, but you're not a Christian. Jesus' half-brother James in John 7 didn't even believe in him, but the time of the action of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Jesus, alive from the dead, appeared especially to his half-brother named James. James understands about trials. Then... By Acts chapter 1, verse 14, what's going on in James' life? By Acts chapter 1, after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, by Acts chapter 1, verse 14, something very interesting. All these with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here in the baby steps of the church, There is James praying with other believers in Jesus Christ, waiting for the Holy Spirit to be given to the church. And finally, in Acts chapter 15, we see that James, the same one who wrote the epistle we're going to be studying, we see in in Acts chapter 15 that James went from being a disbeliever in Christ to a witness of the resurrected Christ to a believer praying for the Holy Spirit to come to the church to in Acts chapter 15, he's the functional leader of the church at Jerusalem. He's functionally the leader of the church at Jerusalem. 
And so James understands trials. He, he understands when he wrote to his first readers, and by extension, when he writes to us this morning, he understands from his own story, a story of doubt turned to determination, a story of spiritual maturity and completeness that could not have come for James except he went through trials. So it is with you and me. No pain, no gain, no trials, no perseverance or endurance, no perseverance or endurance, no mature completion. Let's not trade our trials. I saw a television program in the maritime provinces of Canada, Newfoundland, which is a very rocky coast of Canada, and they were flying kites, and they tied these homemade kites to these long strings, and they had to wait for a gusty day because you can't fly a kite on a calm day. You can't grow, learn and grow as a Christian everything that God intends for you to do on a calm day either. And on a gusty day, the reason the kite went up is they had it on a string and they ran and pulled it initially against the wind. They didn't go with the wind. Too many Christians say, I want to live a Christian life that's with the wind. No, God designs the wind so that it blows into the, into the kites of our lives and we can soar high in faith and conforming image to Christ's. Don't trade your trials. Don't look for days without wind. God is at work. He's up to something good. You can trust him. And then you are being conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your plan of salvation is not limited to just the translation out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of your glorious light, that your salvation is not merely an escape out of hell and into heaven, but your salvation includes forgiveness and heaven as a gift, but it also encompasses and includes the shaping of us to be more like Christ while on earth. Lord, Give us grace to reckon, to consider our trials pure joy. Because of the five reasons we've seen in the text this morning, may we not even want to trade our trials because you can't fly a kite without a gusty, windy day. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake and God's church said, Amen.